The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first 50000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash culture. And by Beechnut Organics. At Beechnut, homemade is their inspiration. It's not baby food. It's real food for babies. Real organic fruits and vegetables and nothing more. Nobody else makes food for babies in this way. Beechnut Organics are now available at Target. And by The Great Courses, offering a series of lectures about food, including Essential Secrets of Spices in Cooking, Making Healthy Food Taste Great, Baking Pastries and Desserts, and Making Great Meals in Less Time. Order any one of these Everyday Gourmet courses for only $9.95 for a limited time at thegreatcourses.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest hashtag Teen Life edition. It's Wednesday, October 7th, 2015. On today's show, the big-budget wide release The Martian returns director Ridley Scott to outer space. But will it return Matt Damon as the stranded-on-Mars astronaut Mark Watney to Earth? Hang tight. We'll find out. And then The Grinder is the new Fox single-camera comedy starring Fred Savage and Rob Lowe as brothers. And finally, and I say this dripping with nothing but admiration, Julia Turner, you're going to have to believe me on this, but is this the slate pitch to end all slate pitches? Was Hamlet fat? Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Do you believe that that's admiration I'm dripping with? I think so. You seem very damp. <laughs> <laughs> I've soaked through my Adidas fleece. We don't here. actually uh, consider that a Slate pitch, though. It's in my other favorite Slate kind of story, which is a Slate investigation, which is when we go long <laughs> on something absurd. My one Another favorite Slate investigations include Forrest Wickman trying to figure out when it became uncool to one-strap a backpack and it became cooler <laughs> to two-strap a backpack, and Dan Engber explaining why hotels never give you toothpaste. So Slate, Slate will go to the map for you and your needs. And this time we tried to figure out whether Hamlet was fat. I love it. You know, Morrissey is very famous for having to change his shirt two to three times per show, you know, because he soaks it through. And this is going to be a three-shirter for me, just soaking through with admiration for that Hamlet story as a, as a slate investigation. Okay, um, The queen Dana- has to give you a napkin to mop your brows afterwards. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there, Dana Stevens. And of course, I'm joined by Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, before we dig in here, though, Julia, we have some business to attend to, don't we? Yes, we have not one, but two live shows coming up in the next six weeks. The first is in San Francisco. This will be our first ever standalone live culture Gabfest in the Bay Area, which seems totally bananas to me, and yet is true. We are coming to the Brava Theater on the evening of Sunday, November 8th. The show will be at 7 p.m., and we are so excited to see you there. And then the second show, we are doing another Slate Superfest last fall. The powers of the Slate political, culture, and sports podcasts gathered and battled for podcast dominance and generally just had, like, a great time goofing around on stage together. That show is coming to Broadway, literally Broadway. Slate podcasts are making their Broadway debut because it will be at Town Hall in Manhattan, which is a lovely venue. It's the sort of place where fancy audio types like Terry Gross do shows, so we've officially entered the big leagues. That will be on Monday, November 16th. And tickets for both of those events go on sale at noon on Wednesday, October 7th. 
at slate.com slash live. If you are a Slate Plus member, you will get an email before then with advance access to tickets. So stay tuned to that if you're a member of Plus. And also, if you're a Slate Plus member, stick around for a special bonus segment of the podcast in which Steve tells us a personal story about how he changed his life's path. I won't say more than that. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. The Martian stars Matt Damon as astronaut Mark Watney, who, after an unexpected dust storm cuts his NASA mission short, is stranded and left for dead on the ruddy surface of uh, said planet. The movie is part Apollo 13, part Robinson Crusoe, as Damon's Watney must, in his words, science the shit out of his predicament in order to survive. Out of the spare parts of the aborted mission, he must create kind of a biosphere sufficient to keep him alive long enough for a rescue crew to come get him. Great premise. Uh, The movie's getting rave notices. Let's listen to a clip. Right. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. Mars will come to fear my botany powers. All right. Well, Dana, as I as I alluded to, um, a critic seemed to love this movie. Are you one of them? Yeah, I have to admit I am. I mean, it's, it just seems like this movie is such a crowd pleaser. What it does, it does so well that I can't imagine going into it with any decent amount of goodwill and not enjoying it. Did, do you, did you guys feel that way? It's, it was such a turnaround of my expectations of somber Ridley Scott blockbuster epicdom. I loved it. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> I'm not sure I respect myself for how much I enjoyed it, but I really enjoyed it. What did you think, Steve? I, I mean, I would say that I liked it and respected it. I, um, I, I'm just team Matt Damon all the way after uh, like overcoming early skepticism about Goodwill Hunting era. Matt Damon really didn't turn me on, and then with the Jason Bourne movies and his work in the um, Soderbergh movie about uh, Archer Daniels, he just he, he, uh, to me he's just become a national treasure. He, you know, the movie does not unfold in poetic silence, as many people have noted. It's very unlike Alien or let's say even Gravity. There's no Kubrickian intergalactic chill, no space poetry, very little space poetry. It seems very chatty, very optimistic. It has a lot of qualities that I don't share, but it's incredibly well done and infectious. I mean, it would be hard to dislike this movie. I completely agree. Uh, Well, a lot of people dislike it. There was a red hot debate on Slate's uh, internal Slack IM channels last night because I think the complaints about the movie are... There are some arguing that it's, quote, competence porn, a phrase that I was not familiar with, but love, like shows and movies where you just watch people, you know, either science the shit out of things or in the case of an Aaron Sorkin production, like TV produce the shit out of things or president the shit out of things. Sorkin is the god of, you know, verbing the shit out of whatever your profession is and competence (laughs) porn generally. Uh, I was not familiar with this notion of a genre. I think that competence porn might be my favorite genre now that I'm aware of it, but we can get back to that later. But there's some people arguing that it's there's not that much conflict. You just watch him. He's stranded on the planet and with hardly a skip in his step, he's like, okay, how am I going to fix it? And he mm-hmm. solves one challenge after the another and you don't really have much uncertainty about whether he will successfully solve the next challenge. 
And you also don't even quite see him figure things out. He just either knows the answer or gets beamed the answer from uh, ground control in Houston once he manages to science the shit out of a way to communicate with them. So some people felt it was like hokey and lacking in suspense. I found it very enjoyable nonetheless. But I think those are the I think there are complaints and those are the complaints. But to the extent that those are legit criticisms, and I certainly felt them a little bit, I'd love to hear your reply to them. I mean, so why why does it succeed if all of that is at least somewhat true? <sighs> I think you're right that Matt Damon is part of the answer. He's very charming. The structure of the movie has him kind of recording a constant video diary about the mission, which is a way for him to talk to himself and to us while all alone on a planet very far away that doesn't feel too contrived once you get used to it. I also think, I mean, for some reason, there have been a lot of space movies lately. Maybe there are always space movies, but I feel like in the last few years, we've talked about Prometheus, which is Ridley Scott's last movie, which is a very chilly, icy, and glacial space odyssey as opposed to this warm, cozy human one. Um, Maybe it's a red planet, blue planet thing. And then we saw... um, Interstellar. Interstellar. And gravity. So we've seen, like, this is the fourth epic space dilemma. And they all share, you know, some version of the, you know, the 20-teen vision of of space and what our cool spacesuits will look like. They, They have a similar aesthetic and vibe. But to me, this was the most human of those stories in that, I mean, none of it's realistic. The plan for getting him home is crazy. It doesn't seem like it would ever work. But there's a kind of patina of realism on this one that I liked. And I thought, you know, in Gravity, there was this histrionic emotional plot overlaid on the sheer amazement of her predicament and her talents and her skills and the decisions she has to make to get home. And they throw this whole, like, dead baby and fetal position, blah, blah. Like, there just was all this... Symbolism, Symbolism on top of... It it was as though the predicament of her being stuck in space was not enough of an emotional predicament. And so they needed to add all this other psychodrama on top of it. And Mm -hmm. I liked that this movie was like... Like, being stuck in space is... That is enough human drama for one movie. You don't need to have other drama on top. You don't need, like, a reason to go home or not. Like, <laughs> <laughs> staying alive and getting back to your planet will do. That's reason. So I sort of liked the pragmatism and the and the kind of baselineness of this movie, that it was not, it, it, it didn't have highfalutin metaphors or, or mm. arbitrary dead babies. It was just like a guy who's stuck on Mars. And obviously, if you're stuck on Mars, you'd rather not be stuck on Mars. Who's so going to try and get off Mars. And I, I liked the humanity of the world that it posited, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's optimistic. It's pra- pragmatic. It's can-do. Um, and Matt Damon is very good at all of those things. Dana, did you miss any of the portentous space poetry of Kubrick or other people who've made space movies? Uh, did it lack a certain depth or thoughtfulness that space often is an occasion for filmmakers to explore? I don't know. I guess maybe, but... That that would be holding every movie to the same yardstick that I think already too many space epics are holding themselves yeah. to. You know, I mean, I, I, I guess if I had been there on that debate on the, the Slack channel, I probably would have thrown in, yes, this is a process movie. You know, that's what I called it in my review. It's, it's sort of a movie where you watch someone figure something out. And I think a lot of the science, at least what's happening on the planet, okay, the rescue <laughs> seems pretty outlandish. We won't spoil what it was, but that seems like Hollywood thinking. But Andy Weir, who was the author of the novel, the best-selling sci-fi novel on 
which this movie is based, is is a scientist, has a background in computer science, comes from a family of scientists, and I think obsessively researched all of this stuff on the planet. For example, the idea of agriculture on Mars. You know, could you grow plants indoors with artificial light and uh, and with human waste, which is how Matt Damon ends up growing this crop of potatoes that helps him to survive. And all of that stuff feels pretty solid to me. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but I like that that part of the movie was about thinking things through and solving problems rather than, you know, being being crushed by the wonderment of space. Mind you, I liked gravity. I liked the philosophical reach of it. And uh, and Interstellar, all right, that was a pretty bad movie, but I didn't mind <laughs> that it was trying to ask these big questions about the fifth dimension is love or whatever was happening when <laughs> Matthew McConaughey was hovering behind a bookcase in space. <laughs> but, um, but this movie was just fun. And something that we haven't mentioned at all is that it's funny, right? I mean, this movie is full of good one-liners and snappy dialogue, whether it's Matt Damon talking to himself at the video monitor like we heard, or the the happenings back at NASA, which have this big, rowdy cast of, of players. The dialogue, the script, is by Drew Goddard, who got his start with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and has since written a lot of movies that are kind of genre parodies, like The Cabin in the Woods, which is a parody of the Cabin in the Woods, Last Girl type of horror film. And he just has a mastery of that, that light kind of dialogue, which is not something you're used to hearing in space. Mm. No, exactly. I mean, it, it brings to mind how often space epics are made by people whose relationship to science is probably very arty and poetic. And and this one does, it just, it has the optimistic spirit in which a lot of science is done. And it felt, I think, enormously fresh because of that and unexpected. Yeah, I mean, the movie really fits into an interesting moment for science and culture, which we've been talking about a bunch on the Slate staff, and I may be spoiling some piece that's that we're writing at some point. But there is kind of this, like, yeah, science moment in pop culture, and this movie is almost propagandistic in favor of science in, in a kind of charming way. Uh, and given all the broader debates in the culture around science and its place and the wars about climate change and the wars about this and that... Uh, you know, evolution and everything else, it's its uh, sort of charming to see science get its rah-rah science moment, even if some of the science that's being rah-rahed is like gobbledygook. Like you're rah-rahing a pretense of scientific accuracy rather than mm-hmm. the actual plausibility of some Mars escape slingshot maneuver or whatever the hell the, the movie actually posits. Right. It's utopian. And it's utopian not only about the possibilities of what science can do, but even about politics. There's this moment where the Chinese and the Americans, basically NASA and the Chinese equivalent of NASA, decide to collaborate to find a way to bring the, the, the astronaut back from space. And that's a moment that I couldn't see happening in a lot of dark, chilly, dystopian, you know, futuristic visions. Oh, yeah. And then the whole world is united in, in whatever the local equivalent of Times Square is standing up and looking at screens hoping hoping that he makes it you know it's just it's, your your word in your review is hokum and it's totally it is, is hokum but it's irresistible as all uh, good hokum is yeah okay well the movie we all seem to really like it it's called the martian it's directed by ridley scott stars matt damon it's playing uh, everywhere and therefore near you go check it out and come to facebook.com slash culture fest tell us what you thought of it all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor julia turner what do we have This episode of the Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless, it's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, barter, cowrie shells, whatever... 
We'll support that, too. Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support mean you'll always be ready, whether you're earning your first dollar or your billionth. See fewer abandoned carts and more sales with Braintree's best-in-class mobile checkout experience. To check it out for yourself, visit braintreepayments.com slash clients. All right, Julia, thanks. Moving on. The Grinder is a no-laugh-track, single-camera, half-hour comedy from Fox. It's new, and it stars Rob Lowe as an actor who, after his hit TV show, The Eponymous Grinder has gone off the air, returns to his hometown of Boise, Idaho, and moves in with his brother, played by Fred Savage. Why don't we listen to a clip? Right, and we should say here that Rob Lowe's character is not speaking to Fred Savage, but to Savage's son, who, uh, like big, cool football player, agreed to come over and hang out with this gawky son, Um, But it turned out he just wanted to make out with the son's cool older sister. And Rob Lowe's character is avenging the wronged nerd in the scene we're about to listen to. Let's just lay all the cards out on the table. Joel, Lizzie, we know what's going on. I don't know what you're talking about, bro. We're fine with it. But I need to make sure that both sides are taken care of. My man E has been wronged. He needs to get something out of this. Make us an offer. What are you guys thinking? What? They've got us in a corner, babe. Fine. Tomorrow at school, I'll tell everybody how much fun I had here, and I'll even say he's a solid hang. That sounds pretty fair. No. We want pictures from your private online accounts posted, giving him a piggyback ride, hashtag best friends, hashtag teen life. Hashtag teen life? What part? of hashtag teen life. Do you not understand? (laughs) I thought there were no more good hashtag jokes in the world, but that one made me laugh. All right. Well, we all laughed. Um, Julia, what, uh, what do you think of this? Is this uh, warmed over or fresh? What do you, what do you say? I, it is an interesting set of ingredients have been put into a pot. And I am not sure what's going to happen when the simmer of a full 22-episode TV season begins. But it seems like it's got, it's got good bones. I'm, I am hopeful about The Grinder. I like the notion of a sitcom that satirizes the tropes, the worst tropes of TV dramas. And also Rob Lowe is just fun to watch in this environment. Yeah, this show, I think, is really all about the comic timing of Rob Lowe, who is, who is pretty incredible as a, as a narcissist. There's nothing he can play the way he can play, you know, somebody who, who, who completely believes in, in his own bullshit. Um, did it strike anyone else? Maybe somebody has written about this, but that this is sort of like a comic version, a more comic version of Better Call Saul. It's the same <laughs> setup. It's two brothers. One is a serious lawyer. One is sort of a joke lawyer, right? A kind of a showman lawyer. And it's the two of them trying to create a practice together and the tension that that creates. It, just, it kept striking me. I really miss Better Call Saul. I can't wait for it to come back. So maybe this just seemed like a, a comic reinterpretation. Oh, that makes me like the show so much less. <laughs> you didn't like Better Call Saul? <laughs> no, I love Better Call Saul. And this show pales in comparison to that when I think of them in the same lineup. We agree that they're tonally just so completely different. I mean, I agree. I love Better Call Saul. But schematically, they're the same. But in every other way, they're not at all. I, I, can I just confess that I... I loved this. Like, I don't, I honestly don't, I honestly don't know what's wrong with me. Like, do I need to go to the freaking emergency room? Is I mean, I just thought it was so funny. And there's not one identifiably fresh element to it. And it just didn't matter. I thought it was, my problem with comedies like this is that they always cross the line between 
like the kid who's cute and the kid who's cutesy. They always go for forced whimsy. They're, I mean, you know, big comedy has made comedic acting so self-conscious and so crap-eating in my in my estimation. For some reason, I felt like this 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 stayed on the right side of that line, improbably the whole time, stayed on the right side of the line, and was filled with nothing but but honest whimsy. I was totally shocked by it. Second of all, it's great. I mean, I haven't seen Fred Savage since he was on Wonder Years. I'm sure he's done a ton of things that I've just missed, but it was great to see him again. I think he's great as a dad bod straight man. And Rob Lowe is very funny in it. I, I, I thought the kids were really good. I laughed all 22 minutes I was laughing and the, the hashtag teen line reading is still like crippling my insides with uh, suppressed laughter. I've gone, I've gone crazy, right? No, I don't. I, I am delighted that this tickled you. I, I, I'm curious to see where it goes. I agree, Steve, that the casting overall is very strong. I think particularly the younger son played by Connor Colopsis, that's like a, a, you know, gawky nerd kid role that could be so on the nose. And the kid just feels really specific and distinctive. And I think also Mary Elizabeth Ellis, who plays Fred Savage's wife, their relationship has more vim and surprise in it than the classic, like you know, sitcom mom and dad relationship. I actually thought Fred Savage seemed like the most fish out of water and kind of rustiest or something in this cast. And he hasn't been acting for a while. I think he's mostly been uh, a very successful TV director and he's directed a lot of, um, Mm. I think he's directed a lot of like Nickelodeon kid, like all those teen shows that spawned all those people who are famous now, whose names I don't know. I think he, I think he has like a, a serious TV directing career going. And obviously part of the point of the show is to juxtapose the kind of friction and the distinctive and opposing oil and water styles of Fred Savage and and Rob Lowe. But Fred Savage seemed a little less comfortable in his own skin. You know, for me, Wonder Years falls exactly in the period when I didn't watch any TV and I don't think even had a TV. So I don't have any feeling for Fred Savage. I know he was a child actor who was beloved on that show, but I don't sort of feel like Fred Savage. He's grown up and made good. It's just Fred Savage is a guy who's on a show. And I thought that he was excellent. I thought his his comic timing and Rob Lowe's don't mesh in a way that's kind of perfect for their characters, because, of course, their characters occupy completely different mental universes. I particularly loved a moment when Fred Savage wanders into his kitchen. His brother, who's a house guest, is sitting there staring into space with a thousand yard stare and Rob Lowe says I couldn't sleep and Fred Savage says it's 830 <laughs> <laughs> oh it's so perfect it's so perfect I'm completely with you on this Dana that the gears not meshing is part of the charm of the show they're a perfect contrast to one another and he's, do, he's doing great straight man work he really is he's setting a lot of that stuff up um, that makes Lowe look like the, the star of the show it's I, it just is I, I don't know how else to describe it it's just funny it's the thing that it is as funny as it thinks it is, which I I think, for me at least, has become increasingly rare. There's a lot of super highly professionalized, really super competent. I mean, this is not really intended as the backhanded insult that it's going to sound like. Um, comedy writers out there, it's, it is a career, it's a big business, a semi-corporatized career path now. And we are so good at producing like really good comedy, whereas there's something, I, I, I mean, I can't think of a more clinical term for it. This is just genuinely fucking funny. It's just funny. It's not self-regarding or or overly self-conscious or like, I don't know. It just made me laugh. 
Well, since you're talking about the writing, we should probably shout out the creators of the show, who are Andrew Mogul and Jared Paul. And yeah, I agree. They've, they've created something that doesn't break any new ground, isn't wildly original, but is just funny at what it does. I think another thing we should mention that it does very well is parody the kind of show that The Grinder was, and therefore the way that Rob Lowe envisions being a lawyer, which, if anything, reminded me of the show we talked about last week, How to Get Away with Murder. You know, that kind of a tawdry law show where there has to be sort of a drumbeat in between every line, mm-hmm. you know. And so the flashbacks to the show are very funny about that. And just that mindset about the law, that TV idea of what the law is, is very funny. All right. All right. You guys have convinced me there's many good spices and protein chunks in this stew. But I think we have to all commit, even you, Steve, to like continuing to sample the show. We can discuss it in a plus segment in (laughs) three months and see, see whether you're still as delighted. Well, you guys should know I'm sticking with You're the Worst, so Steve should stick with The Grinder. We all have to stick with the shows that we say we love. I'm sticking with How to Get Away with Murder. <laughs> Sorry to report. <laughs> Ooh, chung, chung. I Short t- straw. I totally watched like five more episodes. <laughs> so I have to continue to eat the protein chunks and report back. Is that what you're saying? Yep. That's your assignment. Okay. The show is The Grinder. It's on Fox. For those of you who run to your you know, DVRs to watch this on my recommendation, give it give it the whole 22 or 30 minutes or whatever it is um, and see if it doesn't grow on you. Uh, it's Fred Savage and Rob Lowe. Check it out. We kind of liked it. Um, and then tell us what you thought about us liking it at facebook.com slash culture fest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? We are sponsored this week, Steve, by Beechnut Organics, which is inspired by homemade baby food. Bright colors, quality ingredients, bold flavors and textures, unique combinations like apple pumpkin and granola, and butternut squash, black bean, and cumin. Beechnut just rejigged its entire baby food line in response to overall trends in the way parents feed their kids these days. They notice that a lot more people are making baby foods at home, and I certainly, when my kids were babies, tried to make a lot of baby food at home. But it's also a super pain in the butt to make all that baby food and store it and freeze it and put it in the teeny tiny little Tupperwares and then knock it out of the teeny tiny little Tupperwares frozen and then warm it up and then clean all those little shitty pieces of plastic. <laughs> the new Beach Nut Organics comes in these gorgeous glass jars that I kind of just want to Instagram because they're these beautiful orbs of bright, nutritious looking goodness, uh, jewel toned goodness. I want to, I want like an outfit made out of uh, the colors that are in these. In any event, the new Beach Nut Organics look great. They use a special, just gentle cooking method that allows the fruits and vegetables to retain their flavors and nutrients. This isn't baby food. It's real food for babies. And Beechnut Organics are now available at Target. You can go to beechnutgabfest.com and enter to win an insane prize, a year's worth of Beechnut Organics food. That is a ton of baby food. If you have a baby, you should go to beechnutgabfest.com and enter because that would be amazing to have a year's worth of baby food show up on your doorstep. You can also find a link to this contest and the official rules on the GabFest show page. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. Picture for a moment Hamlet, the melancholy prince of Denmark, so writes Isaac Butler in Slate magazine. Chances are you're imagining a dashing gentleman who looks like one of the many famous actors who've played him, Kenneth Branagh, or Laurence Olivier, Jude Law, on and on. You might even picture Benedict Cumberbatch, who is drawing crowds to London to see him play the role. As Butler goes on to say, you're probably picturing someone let's be frank, skinny, lean, with a pensive countenance. Um, But what if our mental image, Butler asks, of Hamlet is wrong? What if the grieving, vengeful prince is actually fat? Dana, this segment allows me to use my second favorite word in the English language, dramaturge. Um, 
I need you to uh, pronounce dramaturgically upon this. What do you think of this argument? Wait, what's your first favorite word? Oligopoly. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> Obviously. If only someone would if only someone would form a dramaturge oligopoly. <laughs> maybe maybe like the Yale Theater Department has a kind That's of a great name for a theater company, the Dramaturge Oligopoly. <laughs> I would flock to their shows. Don't you dare try to become a dramaturge somewhere else. <laughs> Steve, you know, the thing I loved about this 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 investigation into the, the fatness or no of Hamlet is that it really it just it, it leads to so many other great avenues of, of thinking about Shakespeare. What I really like that Butler does in this piece is, you know, besides answering the question, is Hamlet fat, which is sort of on its face an absurd question, right? I mean, Hamlet is whatever he becomes in each new incarnation, right? So the idea that he has a look, a nature, a way he's supposed to be is in itself kind of funny, but it allows Butler to do all these great lexicographical investigations of Shakespeare. So he starts looking into the word fat in the play Hamlet. How many times does it appear? What does it mean each time that it appears? And we should say that the the nugget that starts this whole question in the first place is the line at the end of Hamlet in the last scene, the the, the big duel, where um, where Gertrude, the queen, Hamlet's mother, says the line, he's fat and scant of breath, right? She, she calls a a halt to the fight, basically. Isn't that right? She says, let's take a break in the the duel here because Hamlet is, quote, fat and scant of breath. And then she hands him her napkin to rub the sweat off his brows. And I remember specifically reading in a version of Hamlet, I don't know if it was Penguin or the Riverside Shakespeare or what, but a note that specified this does not mean that Hamlet is obese. This means (laughs) that he's sweaty. That was sort of the, the standard scholarly interpretation, that there's an Elizabethan usage of the word fat that means sort of greasy, you know, sweaty. Mm. Um, and so and so Butler's trying to look into whether or not it could have anything to do with the actual adipose tissue of the character. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say adipose, my third favorite word. Julia, I have to say, um, uh, in all sincerity, I thought this was a wonderful essay. It's beautifully written. It's wonderfully argued. It has great pace and verve, and it's just fun all the way through. So kudos uh, for publishing it. What do you make of the substance of the argument? Do you think it matters whether Hamlet is in some sense uh, intrinsically meant to be heavy or fat, or, um, or can anybody play him at any weight? Well, I think it feels like an interestingly radical question to ask because we live in a day and age when the hero of any story that we watch is very unlikely to be anything but lean. And it's funny to kind of do the magic eye trick of just thinking like, wow, I assume all heroes of all things are probably rather thin because that's the way we portray them. Could it have been that the the central figure of one of Shakespeare's greatest plays was actually intended to be, you know, somewhat large all the time. And what would that mean about what people thought about bodies then and what we think about them now and the assumptions that we make and the, you know, textual evidence in plain sight that generations of actors and producers would have to have ignored to give us the dashing Hamlet we want as opposed to the corpulent Hamlet we deserve. But I think that the essay wears these questions lightly in a nice way and is more interested in interrogating the different possible ways of viewing the question than coming down definitively on any one side of it. And I think that's the right approach in any question of what a fictional person looks like, <laughs> because obviously all we have is is hints and notes here and there. And I think there are, it's possible to argue it up or down, fat mm-hmm. or thin. But one other point, apart from the ones Dana noted that I thought was interesting in this investigation was... Um, is attention to the the actor who typically played Hamlet in Shakespeare's day, who is a 
man who got older and puffier as time went along, perhaps, and might have might have been a little bit rotund by the time. You mean was... Richard Burbage, the the member of Shakespeare's company? Yeah, yeah. But nobody knows what he looked like, right? Right. There are questions about whether we might. Uh, infer that he was fat based on the other roles that he played, which made criticisms of people being lean. So perhaps by contrast, we can, you know, deduce that he was fat, but that seems like a bit of a far stretch. But it, but the sort of different ways to think about what would it mean, you know, that sort of raises the question, if the kind of founding actor of this role was fat, does that mean Hamlet's fat? I don't think that really necessarily means he's definitively fat either, because I think you could probably be a fat Hamlet or a skinny Hamlet and be a successful Hamlet, right? Well, the piece is illustrated with some pictures of, of famous Hamlets through the ages, which make for a great addition. So you see the young John Gielgud. And who else is in those pictures? They're all dashingly handsome. Sir Alec Guinness is a young man playing the role, holding a skull, fantastic picture, and a very fey-looking Hamlet uh, named Robert Helpman from the 40s. But there's no picture of a fat Hamlet, even though Isaac Butler does mention that at least two reasonably dumpy actors, Simon Russell Beale and Paul Giamatti, have played the role in the last 15 years, which made me really long for, A, to see Paul Giamatti play Hamlet, and B, to at least get a picture, an illustration. It sort of seemed like, you know, if we're, we're putting up an argument for fat Hamlet, we should show somebody in that role. Not to call Peter Paul Giamatti fat. He just has an average body. Right. It raises the interesting question of why we assume from textual evidence that Hamlet would be thin. I'm trying to remember now. I mean, is there anything that suggests, other than the kind of totality of the psychological portrait of Hamlet, that suggests, I mean, why why, why one associates pensive with thin, I don't even know in the first place. But it's interesting to think about why the tradition started. I mean, just well, a romantic vision of a, of a handsome young man, right? We know Hamlet's relatively young. We know he was mm-hmm. a student. We know that he has Ophelia pining for him. I mean, there's various things sort of suggesting that he is a dashing youth. You know, whether that goes with thin or not is more culturally determined. Well, what's funny, too, is that his age is in question, right? There's some evidence that he's as old as 30. There's some evidence that he's an undergraduate. It seems unclear just how old he is. It's funny because you could do it either way, right? I mean, sort of acting as everyone's conscience, which makes him seem like he should be sort of rapier and thin at the other on the other hand, he's famous for doing absolutely nothing in a way and and wallowing in his own kind of crapulent internal mechanisms, you know, overthinking mechanisms. And therefore, maybe he could be maybe he could be kind of heavy. Yeah, I mean, it sort of depends what the metaphor is. If you think about the like jolliest man in Shakespeare is Falstaff, right? Like the most the most like explicitly rotund, or at least in my mind, maybe there's not so much textual evidence there either, but I suspect that's wrong. You know, Falstaff is like, he's jolly, he's hearty, he eats, like corpulence is associated with the kind of like wise, jolly clown-ish role of Right, he's, he's like Orson Welles, who played an amazing Falstaff in Chimes at Midnight. Right, and to the degree that Hamlet seems uncomfortable with his place in the world and everything in it and uncertain of what to think about it. He seems like too indecisive to actually raise a fork to his mouth without giving a (laughs) soliloquy about whether he should eat it or not. So it seems plausible that he'd be wasting away because of his indecisiveness. But you're right. I mean, you can you can argue it up or down like you could in terms of like what body type does it make sense for an indecisive drifter type to have? Like, I don't know. You could you could you could you could make it either way. I think that's why that's why I love this piece in a way. It's, it's by a playwright, we should mention. Isaac Butler is a man of the theater himself and has a show that's about to be produced at BAM. And I think he has done a lot of thinking about what it, what theater is. And that, in a way, I think is what this piece is about more than the fatness yes. or not fatness of Hamlet, right? It's about the 
eternal rejuvenation and rejuvenability of a great theater character. Mm -hmm. By the way, I just want to interject here and make it absolutely plain. I am associating no characterological qualities with body types at all. I hope I'm arguing against that and not for that. I'm just wondering why one trend or the other might have taken over in people's heads about who Hamlet ought to be. But but kind of moving on from there a little bit, Julia, can you think of instances where a character has been portrayed by someone who made them seem completely different to their original literary identity. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think about that too, Steve. And I love, um, I think part of what I like about this essay is that I've never really liked Hamlet that much as a player, as a character. I recognize that that's like just a moronic sounding thing to say. It's obviously an excellent play. <laughs> like A slate investigation. Was he all that? <laughs> Was Hamlet all that? Is Shakespeare any good? That's no, not relatable. <laughs> now the truth can be known. I, I understand the things that Hamlet does wonderfully, but in general, I have trouble with the kind of great protagonist of literature. I've talked about this on the show before, who is like just woefully indecisive about things like I the the kind of the, the brooding the great brooder you know Raskolnikov Hamlet the great brooders of literature these are not the parts of literature that most resonate for me and it would be interesting I, I was wondering whether I would enjoy Hamlet more if I could see a production of Hamlet that had a very unromantic undashing Hamlet that if it portrayed Hamlet in ways that are not classically seen as obviously swoon-inducing in Ophelia, and and if it wasn't assumed that he was such a compelling ditherer, whether that might change the way the play plays for me. Obviously, there's all kinds of assumptions about body types embedded in that, that I I am with you, Steve, and not wanting to endorse any particular reading, but it it would be neat to see a production of Hamlet that really was very unglamorizing of Hamlet, however it achieved that, whether through body type or through other modes. Um, because I haven't quite seen that version of Hamlet, I don't think, and I I would be intrigued to see how that would transform the play a bit. In terms of other bits of literature, who are the most surprising versions? I don't know. Do you have a good answer to that, Dan? I mean, this isn't exactly literature. It's more real life, but I was thinking of Kate Blanchett playing Bob Dylan in the Todd Haynes movie, I'm not there. I and mean, that's one of those moments where, you know, someone someone takes a character into a completely new direction. But literary figures, I don't know. I can think of miscasting, but that's a little bit different than, you know, great unexpected casting that reveals something new. Um, I mean, I, the only uh, this is only because I can think of it off the top of my head, but when Alec Guinness played George Smiley, and I think Smiley was meant to be supremely anonymous looking. And I even think Lacare had him as slightly overweight. That this was that, that he was sort of inelegant, slightly overweight, and a man that you would walk by and never think about twice, which is why he was a great spy. And and Guinness has some of those qualities. He can he can look plausibly anonymous, but he so became George Smiley um, after those two BBC miniseries adaptations of the Lacare books, spy books, that it was just impossible. It became impossible not to read the books and simply eliminate from any adjectival description that conflicted with one's mental image of Alec Guinness. But I'm sure there are dozens of others like this, where the film portrayal really just completely overtook in the public's mind the identity of the character. I mean, Atticus Finch, is Atticus Finch supposed to be anything that Gregory Peck isn't? I mean, if so, one sides with Gregory Peck in one's mind. <laughs> it always does go to the obvious, like, let's just make him a little more attractive kind of mode, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess, like, you know, the Mr. Rochester that we saw in the Jane Eyre, the, the Gary Fukunaga Jane Eyre that we talked about a few years ago. Mr. Rochester is supposed to be compelling, but he's also supposed to be kind of like 
I don't know. He's not supposed to just be like a dapper charmer, right? And yeah, he needs to be slightly grotesque. He was yeah. also played by Orson Welles really convincingly, actually. Not played by Orson Welles in the in the Carrie Fukunaga version. And then I also, um, I mean, the other experience I had this with, but the, again, this feels much more mundane, is the casting of Emma Watson as Hermione in the Harry Potter films, mm. which she was too young for anybody to know quite how um, composed and gorgeous and glamorous she would seem by the time the series was over. But the, Her- the Hermione of the books is like a frowsy-haired proper nerd, you know, in the manner of kind of like the, the glorious full nerd early Hillary Clinton photos um, or even the glories of, of um, Chelsea's protected early nerddom. Like, I would have loved a true a true girl nerd in that role and not a, like, pretty girl with glasses version of a girl nerd. But Even though we, she did great in that role eventually. Like, yeah. I, didn't begr- I mean, you know, I feel like all the Harry Potter kids became those characters so completely that they kind of inhabit the books now. Yeah, I love Emma Watson. What, you know, whatever. It's it, But the, the jarring moment of like, oh, that was sort of the... The Hollywood version of of that role, you mm. you but you end up you end up getting just handsomer and prettier versions of the particular characters that they get described always. So to some degree, this is just a pattern that you see again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we if nothing else, we've come up with the perfect subtitle for Hamlet, <laughs> which is not verbing the shit out of things. <laughs> To verb or not to verb. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't verb the shit out of anything in that play. I think we can fairly say. All right. The essay is called Is Hamlet Fat? It's by Isaac Butler. It's a uh, ter- it really is a terrific read. Check it out on Slate.com. Let us know what you think of it. And fam- uh, Hamlet's uh, relative degree of, Dana, help me out, adipose. Adiposity. Adiposity. <laughs> Adipositivity. <laughs> oh, dramaturgically speaking. All right. Well, um, we're at facebook.com slash culturefest as always. Okay. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we got? We are sponsored this week, Steve, by The Great Courses, which are fascinating video and audio lectures in a wide variety of subjects, all taught by top experts in their field. Recently, I've been checking out the Everyday Gourmet Cooking Collection from The Great Courses, which includes the essential secrets of spices in cooking, making healthy food taste great, baking pastries and desserts, making great meals in less time. Filmed in partnership with the Culinary Institute of America, these lecture series provide great opportunities to learn from master chefs about tools and how to use them, tips for how to cook better and other ways to enhance your cooking skills. You should check out the great courses for yourself and we have a special limited time offer for our listeners. Order any of the four Everyday Gourmet courses I just mentioned for just $9.95. The special price of $9.95 is only available for a limited time, so order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash culture. That's thegreatcourses.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? Well, Steve, I don't usually endorse local events, hint, hint, because there are some members of our cohort who are always endorsing things that you can only do if you live in one part of the world. Mm, but always, this, yes. But there sometimes two weeks in a row, the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but this week, I just I have to endorse something local because I did something in New York City that was so wonderful. But it is an event that happens every year, and, and lots of people can go to it. So anyone who comes to New York in October can do this. And it's something that I've wanted to do for over a decade and have never managed to get myself there until now. So what I did on Sunday is I went to the Feast of St. Francis at the St. John the Divine Cathedral. Our producer is nodding and knows what it is. So um, so St. Francis is the patron saint of animals, right? He's the one who's always pictured with birds landing on his shoulders, etc. He could speak to animals in the legends. And so on his saint's day every year, which is the first Sunday in October, 
the Saint, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which is this massive Gothic cathedral on the Upper West Side, close to Columbia University, has a, a mass where you can bring your pets. You can get your pets blessed by the priests. Your animals can stay with you during this two-hour-long kind of joyous Episcopalian service that can, included modern dance and all kinds of music and like the sound of whales and harp seals being played, <laughs> which the dogs would bark at because they couldn't figure out what animal was making that noise in the cathedral. And then at the end, and this is the grand finale that my daughter patiently sat through two hours of talking about God when she is, you know, not at all a kid who listens to people talk about God on Sundays for this, is that they then they have a silent procession of animals up the, the main aisle of the cathedral to the to the priests. And among the animals that came from some kind of rescue shelter upstate were a camel, two alpacas, uh, <laughs> various turtles and swans and pigs and something called a kuatamundi that's sort of like a ring-tailed lemur that was perched on a woman's shoulder. So just imagine this huge nave of a Gothic cathedral and all of these people walking down it in white cassocks all the way to the ground. I don't know what their religious affiliation was or if they just dressed that way and they were animal handlers. And they're leading all these beasts up the aisle and then they come stand around the altar and get blessed and we all sing about God's creation and then we go home. It was just such a great experience and I'm never going to miss it again. So it's something that you have to get online and go to the St. John the Divine website and get a pass, but it's free. And uh, and you can take your beast and get them blessed by a priest. It's, did, it's a beautiful thing. Did you bring thing. Ruby? No, she's too shy. There's no way. She would have utterly freaked out in a room with camels and coatamundis, <laughs> not to mention countless other dogs and cats and guinea pigs. But afterwards, I, we walked around, my daughter and I, and uh, and kind of informally interviewed some of the people there about their animals and why they had brought them. And it was just, it was such a great experience. So, um, so don't mm. miss the... Feast of St. Francis at St. John the Divine Cathedral, if you're ever in New York in October. Um, Julia, what do you have? I do not think I have an endorsement that can hold a candle to uh, Dana's extraordinary endorsement. That sounds like a genuine cavalcade of wonders. But um, I have been using Blue Apron a bunch recently. This is the subscription cooking service where you sign up and they deliver to you once a week all the ingredients that you need to prepare three meals. And you can decide if you want it for one, for two, or for four. It's sort of feel, it's one of those services where you're like, really, there's a business around that service? Can't people cook and buy food? And yet, I do not cook and buy food very much because there are all of these weird indecision points. Like, you're at work and it's four and you think, should I cook tonight? And you're like, maybe, what should I cook? And then there's the decision point of what you should cook. And then there's, do I have all the ingredients for that at home? And then there's the time when you try and remember if you do and you try to visualize your fridge, but is it the fridge of this morning or the fridge of three mornings ago? And then you like call someone or are you going to go home and check and then go out again to go shopping? And by the time you figure all that out, you spent so much mental energy on it and you're fucking starving and you just order pizza to come take out. And Blue Apron is very ingenious in that it takes all of that out. You can just be like, I know there's all of the things to make one meal at home in my fridge tonight, and I will make it, and it'll take half an hour, and then it'll be delicious. And the meals are really tasty. They get you to cook cuisines that you never would have tried. I've made, like, Mexican stuffed peppers and pork ramen, and, you know, mostly I, I cook various iterations of Italian food because that's the food I know best and like best, but um, it's been fun to try these other things. You don't learn everything. Like sometimes you kind of get bundles of spices or you get like a little sauce to deglaze the pan and it's unclear what's in the sauce. So you, it helps you learn new cuisines and styles, but it doesn't necessarily um, like teach you everything you might want to know. But it, I found it to be just a great way to reincorporate like weeknight cooking into my routines and not to be so dependent on the offerings on Seamless.com. So Blue Apron, check it out if you haven't. If you've been on the fence about it, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a convert. 
Excellent. Um, so uh, this week I'm going to endorse something that everyone knew about before I knew about it, and now I've discovered it through my kids and adore it. It's a TV show called Bob's Burgers. <laughs> <laughs> What's being laughed at? The awesomeness of Bob's Burgers or the awesomeness of Steve Metcalf discovering it? I just um, I like the idea last. of you watching Bob's, Burner, Bob's Burgers. It's it's so it's just incredibly funny. It's I mean you, I'm sure everyone listening to the show is familiar with it. It's basically a animated comedy, family based TV show in the Simpsons mode. Uh, and then just looking on, I know nothing about it. Literally, I watch it with my kids. It cracks me up. It's been around for several seasons. It's really really consistently funny and I think good hearted in a, in a wonderful way. And um, I just discovered why. The first series developed by Lauren Bouchard, who created Bob's Burgers, was Dr. Katz's professional therapist, which remains one of my favorite weird, offbeat, mostly undiscovered TV shows of all time. But So it's great to know that he's still going and still doing great work. And then my other uh, very quick endorsement is um, I went to my favorite movie theater up here, Upstate Films, in Rhinebeck, New York, to watch The Third Man, the old Carol Reed movie. It's a post-war noir written by Graham Greene and starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles, whose name came up a lot in this uh, in this episode. But it it is it remains probably my favorite movie of all time, if not certainly on the list of five or six favorite movies of all time. It's just an unbelievable film. There's a great anecdote from the movie that I'll tell very quickly, which is uh, Welles in 1949, when the movie was made, was so powerful an intellect, a presence, an actor, a producer, a director, and just all around kind of anomalously charismatic human being that it was always suspected that he 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 secretly wrote or directed every movie he was associated with the film as i said was written by graham green no slouch himself uh, but it dogged graham green to the point where graham green was once asked in a lecture hall by a q a an audience q a he said is it true that orson wells wrote the film and graham green delivered the most wonderfully magnanimous answer he said no 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 i wrote the movie however orson wrote the best line in the film which is this very famous exchange where uh, Wells turns to his friend and says, you know, for its incredibly infamous line, I'll get it wrong, but for 30 years under the Borgias, there was, you know, criminality, corruption, murder, duplicity, and they created the Renaissance for 500 years under the Swiss. There was peace, prosperity, you know, public good. And what did they create? The cuckoo clock. And Graham Greene admits that that line was written um, by Orson Welles, which is kind of wonderful. Anyway, it's a fucking amazing movie. It really is one of the great film noirs ever made. It's one of the great post-war existential dread movies ever made. It, it really is as close to a perfect movie. Also, I should say the occasion is that there's a new print. I mean, there's a reason to go see it's been rejiggered and and made, you know, to look even better. So there is a reason to search it out. It's being revived. Um, oh, yeah. There's always a reason to see The Third Man, for sure. Obviously, All I've right. never seen The Third Man because that's how I roll. <laughs> see, there you go. Your endorsement just reached <laughs> the one soul it needed to reach. Uh, <laughs> Um, all right. Well, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Welcome back. So great to have you back. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply and our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. You're having tea with Graham Green. And 
a colored costume of your choice And you'll be thought in high esteem If you're seen in between